0: How would you feel? You picked up your morning coffee, you settled down at your desk, open your emails, and then suddenly armed cops are at your door. Only it's not the police. It's some weird branch of the federal government. And you have no idea why they're there.
1: Too, too often. officers very respectful and nice, and, but they were intimidating I quickly realized that I needed to get involved and ask my brother-in-law to allow me to handle that and uh, because he tended to get a little bit defensive and emotional. We went into the conference room. They started to explain what it was that they were there for and what happened.
0: The company had broken a U.S. economic sanction. Government agents were there to charge the firm and arrange payment. That's how it works, there's no court process. Once you hear from the Office of Foreign Assets Control or OFAC, which is part of the U.S. Treasury Department, you are a sanctions breaker.
1: I, I, I had no idea, you know, it really just didn't have any warning albeit they called the day before.
0: Yeah, before they showed up with guns, the government did call. But our source here, who we'll call Tim because he wants to remain anonymous for this podcast, he works at a family business of 10 people. His brother-in-law was the one who picked up the phone.
1: And told him, you know, you can only imagine, but which resulted in the next day.
0: With the government at their door
1: which they said, if we didn't comply, that it could be criminal.
0: No matter where in the world you are, it is your responsibility to know if your customers and business partners are on one of these sanctions lists that the government says are off limits. And not just in the U.S., there are loads of lists, including those overseen by the U.N. and every country where you might be doing business. In the last four years, U.S. regulators alone doled out $1.5 billion in charges. Even companies that had huge compliance programs and employed thousands of people dedicated to putting red flags on paperwork still got fined, showing just how easy it is to break an economic sanction. I'm Nell McKenzie, and in this episode of Euromoney's Treasury and Turbulence Podcasts, we'll look at two very different accounts of what happened when people tried to do the right thing and how they failed. This podcast is supported by City's Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 96 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change.
1: We followed a lead, a pretty good sale to a company in China because we actually became uh, friendly with them and they had a presence in the United States in California where they maintained an office. They flew across country. We met and we reviewed the machine that we were quoting like we would do any other customer anywhere. And it was very real and very professional.
0: The key detail here is that Tim's customer was not on any government list.
1: They weren't. They, The company that we sold them to were not on any OFAC list at all. They did not happen to have a warehouse. So they contracted over in their country, a company to simply receive our machines on a loading dock from a container, that was it. And that company who I didn't know who existed, you know, a week or two before I shipped, machines were built, sold, getting ready to ship. Where am I supposed to be shipping these to Mr. Customer? he went and found a place that could physically receive the containers, offload them, put them on trucks and send them to wherever they needed it. So that company, was on the OFAC list, who I didn't have any dealings with. But I did deliver to that company, you understand?
0: The warehouse was real estate owned by what used to be part of the Chinese government, which had in the past sold missile technology to Iran.
1: I remember talking to the officer from OFAC while we were winding down to the end of their investigation. And my biggest thing was, why do you let the commodities, exports happen? Why don't you police it? before it leaves and or educate better. And every single export has to go through certain stages before it can literally get on an airplane or on a boat.
0: It begs the question, if a sanction is so easy to break, then what's the point of it in the first place?
1: If I wanted to ship it to North Korea, I'll bet I could have gotten away with it. And then after it got there, they would have policed it and reinforced it.
0: Tim has paid his fine and settled his score. But his experience has left a mark.
1: The feeling that I was left with, it really, you know, makes makes me suspicious and not really trust our government. They, they wanted to find us. That was apparent from the beginning, and apparent in the end. It was something that they could have prevented. And I feel they, did, they could still prevent these things. And they, they don't. They didn't have an answer for me why they don't spend resources to prevent, to educate.
0: Anna Bradshaw, a partner at Peter and Peter's law firm, says in the last four years, compliance programs have improved a lot. So today, Tim probably would have met someone making sure his machines were not going to wind up or pass through the wrong hands. But still, she says, it's tough out there.
2: They are penalizing people and publicizing Penalties that are imposed as a means of educating businesses on what their obligations are. And it's obviously an
0: unattractive
2: proposition for the business that happens to be hung out to dry.
0: The unfortunate side of strict liability, right? Doesn't matter if you are aware of the law or not. You now serve as a warning to other companies. It all fits in to this
2: new world where we see law enforcement and regulators struggling to police and regulate in a traditional way. The sheer scale of financial crime in general, not just sanctions, breaches, but financial crime is incredibly hard to police because it's cross-border, and it also occurs at a volume (laughs) that simply wouldn't be possible to address using traditional law enforcement
0: techniques. Because the problem is so huge that companies have taken on part of the government's responsibilities.
2: So ever since the early 90s, I would say, banks, for example, have played an enormously important role in reporting suspicions of money laundering and freezing
0: accounts where they think there is potentially dirty money. And now this includes professional services like lawyers, auditors, accountants and even estate agents and casinos. Of course, Anna points out there are some unintended consequences. If you're viewed as too risky or too small for these kinds of gatekeepers, you might get overlooked. Because the
2: banks, professional service providers, the other regulated businesses will take the view that it's simply too risky to have anything to do with you and they will choose to cut the cord.
0: For a small company in the U.S., falling out of reach of traditional finance, either through circumstance or maybe by mistakes made, it can mean a huge lack of information flow. And that can have a serious consequence, like in the case of Blue Robin, a software company. They broke a US economic sanction and the company was fined in 2015.
3: My name is Hadi Shavarini. I came to the United States when I was barely 17 years old, arrived in New York City. I didn't speak a word of language, and I didn't know a single person in this country. So I came with one kind of uh, raggedy rag, uh, brown suitcase. That's it. What was
0: in the suitcase out of curiosity? Toothbrush?
3: Gee, uh, I had a whole set of clothing. Most of them my mother had sewn for me. Uh, They're all, this is back in 1978. And it was one of those suitcases that loudly said, An immigrant has just arrived.
0: Hadi is now retired from the web hosting business he ran in Boston for 17 years. At the start, it was just him and his co-founder. But as the business grew, so did the demands of his customers. They needed to hire a team of software engineers. And Hadi found them by chance at a wedding for his wife's family in Iran.
3: Her cousin was one of those smart engineers. (laughs) That's how the connections were made. And these are young kids... All graduates of the top, top university in Iran. We we come from the U.S. They're all so excited seeing us. We're like, to them, we're like something they dream about.
0: They started working together. Clients were happy. They began to make money. Hadi needed to find a way to get these guys on payroll.
3: Not knowing anything, my business partner and I go to our bank in Watertown, Massachusetts. And we say, well, we need to send $2,000. To Tehran. And the banker tells us, no, you can't send money to Tehran. Why can't we send money to Tehran?
0: They did not tell Hadi that if he sent any money to Iran at all, he would be in breach of US economic sanction. They went to a Western Union, same deal here.
3: No, no, no. Banks, we have no idea. Nobody tells us.
0: So they go to a rug merchant they know in Boston. He recommends a fellow rug merchant who said he knew the father of Hadi's software developers and could get them the money this way.
3: Never met one-to-one, honestly. Just a phone call. He gave me his business account. He gave me his tax ID, all of that stuff, because we had to say in our book, where is this money is going, right? We Everything kosher. We go in... We send him money. Every time we do a project or whatever, send it to this bank account in, in New York. And then this kid used to send the money to Tehran to his father. And then his father would go meet my team, give him the equivalent in, in Toman, Right?
0: And this arrangement works for three years until it doesn't.
3: We can't find the gentleman who was doing this money transfer for us. My team in Tehran contacted his father in Tehran, and they haven't heard from him either. They haven't heard from their own son. They had no idea. We discover that this contact in New York, he was arrested. And we have no idea why he was arrested.
0: He performs an internet search.
3: I found the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC. I call it the OFAC, and it's truly OFAC. After I read what is going on, on my own, I was able to find a a specialist lawyer in Washington, D.C.
0: In the midst of this, coming back from a business conference, Hadi receives a call from his wife.
3: And she tells me, don't be afraid and don't worry, but there were two federal agents looking for you. That's when all hell broke loose. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm going to go to jail. Remember, I'm, <laughs> I'm from Iran, right on top of the axis of evil, right? And Homeland Security agents knocking on your door. Not a good situation here.
0: Hadi's lawyer tells him to self-disclose with OFAC, and he does. Then he sits down with the federal agents who had knocked on his door previously.
3: We sit in right around my kitchen table in my house. They bring with them a stack of my company's business checks that I had written to the guy in New York. They had not come to investigate me. They were actually investigating our friend in New York. And they tell me, they said, look, you're not in any trouble. We are here because we're investigating this other fella. And he's doing this thing that is called Hawala, And I learned it from these guys, the terminology hawala.
0: Hawala is a way to transfer money outside of the traditional financial system. In the U.S., it's considered money laundering because any transfer of funds requires a license. They have
3: arrested this guy and he's been in jail already months. He's in federal jail in New Jersey.
0: Meanwhile, OFAC had given Hadi a $250,000 citation.
3: I can't pay. $250,000 $250,000 will tank me. We told him, I said, listen, it's, it's taking blood from stone at this point.
0: He paid $80,000 according to U.S. documents.
3: And we have to close the business in Tehran. We ended up closing that door over there. You know, my business wasn't ever the same, so we couldn't develop anymore Uh, because our development arm basically we lost. Not for this reason, not for uh, any other reason other than just being tired of having been in business for long enough, I decided to step down as the CEO and I gave my interests, I sold it to my uh, business partner.
0: He wishes someone had told him that he was breaking the law.
3: Let me tell you, when somebody shows you the badge and they tell you that they are FBI and Homeland Security and stuff like that, let me tell you something. That's pretty, (laughs) I mean, my world stopped right before my eyes. It's so scary. You know, it's serious, serious stuff. I get punished like this under Obama administration when Hillary Clinton is trying to set up her virtual embassy with the Iranian people. And who am I? And who are those Iranians that young kids that they think of US as their savior. Who am I hurting over here? They punish me.
4: Because sanctions are so far-reaching and complex, there's a lot that you can do that could be a breach. But it may not be that you are therefore um, an evil person who should end up in jail.
0: Maya Lester has been called Queen of the Sanctions Bar
4: and the British QC who owns the world of sanctions. I'm a barrister at Brick Court Chambers in London. I have a particular interest in the law relating to economic sanctions.
0: So is the international sanctions regime fit for purpose? That
4: is a very genuinely complicated question. And the first reason it's complicated is because very often sanctions don't say what it is they are trying to do. Very often what they will say is because of the political situation or the human rights deterioration in X country Belarus, let's say, Syria, we will impose sanctions, we the international community. But they don't say, but if you do X, then we will lift them. Sometimes they do. And the Iran nuclear deal is a good example of that kind of dynamic. But very often they don't. And so the second reason it's complicated is that I don't believe that there is a very comprehensive way of measuring whether a sanctions regime is doing anything or not because it's one of the tools in the foreign policy armory of the international community of countries so when a country is thinking well what do we do about this foreign policy situation do we send in the troops do we negotiate do we impose sanctions of course imposing sanctions is an attractive option from many perspectives because it's not very costly it sends a powerful signal in theory, you're targeting the bad guys, whether in fact it imposes pressure where it should be imposing pressure.
0: If you're not going to sanction an entire country, then who do you pick from within that country? For example, you can't just go for the prime minister or a head of state.
4: And that's for political reasons. Why right? We still want to be able to negotiate with and have international relations with presidents and leaders around the world.
0: Okay, so then one level down. If you want to sanction agencies, businesses and people with ministerial positions in that country, do these people have enough power to change policy?
4: Is there something that this individual could do that would signal that the sanction is actually working and therefore that sanctions should be lifted? Uh, I, I think if the issue is, do they send a signal of disapproval, Undoubtedly, I think they do. And you can take the recent imposition of human rights sanctions by the UK, the European Union, Canada and the US. Those certainly seem to send a signal that we do not approve of gross violations of human rights. So it is a complicated question.
0: This question is at the centre of policy deliberations in Britain right now.
4: Because of the end of the Brexit transition period and the, the legal start of Brexit on the 1st of January, the UK is now a sanctions imposer for the first time because the UK's always done sanctions via the EU. And so actually it is an interesting time to think about do sanctions work. We'll hear
0: more from Maya Lester about what a UK sanctions regime might look like, as well as from former US regulators about how they do their job and why they think it matters in our next podcast when we talk to the makers of sanctions.
1: You can't behave like it's just sending it to Texas from California. Somebody gets arrested and in order to try and fully cooperate, they roll over on somebody else and cases get built that
3: way as well. The dumbest cases involve those who believe they can sneak something by the U.S. government.
0: But for now, please join us for the City House View. Joining me is Charlie Greer, Who looks after AML sanctions and anti-bribery and corruption risk for cities treasury and trade solutions. Charlie, welcome to The House View.
5: Thanks, it's great to be here. So
0: given the stories we've heard today, if you had a magic wand and you could
5: set up a way for small businesses to be introduced to the idea of sanctions, what would you do? When you go to register a company, it makes sense to call out specific things that they need to be aware of. Just something as simple as a fact sheet of have you thought of this? Or, you know, you're opening a company via a company's house. Did you know that Her Majesty's Treasury has a list of people or, or companies you can't do business with? Something very, very simple that gets it on individuals' radars right away. I also think that if people are setting up companies via incorporation agents, that it should almost be part of that service offering that they're helping to inform and address those issues up front. Banks do have a massive part to play in educating their customers. You know, something that we're looking to do quite extensively this year is really start the dialogue with our clients, both at a large scale, right through to our SME client segment. What does sanctions risk mean for the bank? Loss of income through other clients because clients lose trust, there's the cultural aspect, the moral ethical aspects of working with a bank that has either accidentally through perhaps mismanagement, broke a sanction, or alternatively, as I say, embedded that kind of culturally into their organisation. Also, the impact to a bank's actual operations is huge. You know, these these individuals who work on sanctions programmes are years and years and years in the making. There are not people that can pivot immediately to another area of the bank. So people, you know, lose ability to, to retain their jobs, the bank's balance sheet drops through the floor. The share price takes a hammering. We've seen lots of examples of that historically when banks have been fined. Then what's involved when the bank has to consider each type
0: of economic sanction, from the kind that targets a whole regime, meaning it's completely out of the question to do business with anyone in that country, to more targeted sanctions that
5: focus on a group of individuals? When you're dealing with a comprehensively sanctioned country, it's quite easy to say, right, we won't do business with that country. Whereas with targeted sanctions, the complexity that they're bringing in, they're much more aimed at hitting the people, instigating the behaviour that you want to shift. You know, if you've got the sectoral sanctions regime in Russia, for example, where you have to work out the beneficial ownership of a company and whether or not it exceeds a certain percentage value of individuals that are captured under the list then you can't do business with them. So it becomes an algebraic equation on whether or not you can do business. One of the results of
0: this, though, is a loss of financial inclusion. And we lose large sectors of the world economy where the bank can act as a gatekeeper and a monitor. What are the risks in that?
5: We want as many people around the globe to have access to formal financial services. If individuals have access to banking wealth follows so they're able to accrue wealth that helps stabilize economies it makes it a lot harder for criminals to hide their wealth from illicit sources it just makes everything a little bit more visible and it means law enforcement can follow up on those on those kinds of suspicious activity reports that banks are obligated to file when they find something that they're not comfortable with what's your takeaway on the stories we heard today We see the headlines, we see that a bank's been fined or that sanctions have been applied as a mechanism of changing behaviour. But we don't get to see how that actually impacts small and medium enterprises or even individuals who are trying to build businesses. So I think what it helps to contextualise is that sanctions is important for everyone to understand. They are complex, they are kind of resource intensive um, to be effectively compliant with. But it's great that their stories are being heard and that people can feel, you know, a little bit more informed. Otherwise, you know, the sanctions process doesn't work if people are going to be making mistakes. This Euromoney podcast
0: was produced, reported, hosted and edited by me, Nell McKenzie. The music was licensed by Premium Beat and composed by Olive Music. You've made it all the way to the end. Thanks for listening.